the Israelites' journey with God and with each other had me wondering about character traits that are necessary for good relationships. So I did what every very serious researcher does. I Googled it. <laughs> and here are some of the character traits that experts agree are necessary for healthy relationships. Mutual respect, trust, communication, flexibility. I think we can all agree that yes, these are important character traits. But what I found interesting was that from a biblical perspective, the most important character trait was not found on any of the lists that I looked at. Would you believe me if I told you that focusing on one specific character trait would improve every single relationship that you have? And that that same character trait would make any conversation you find yourself in, no matter the content, easier. Well, it is my goal today to convince you of just that. The Israelites' journey towards the Promised Land had begun, and they were off to a bit of a rocky start. Remember back in Numbers 10, when the Israelites were first setting out, we were told the following. The Israelites traveled on from the wilderness of Sinai, moving from one place to the next, until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. One of those places where the Israelites temporarily stalled before making it to where the cloud stopped, we saw last week. Their journey was stalled as they reacted to general hardship. It was not easy for the Israelites to not know how long they would be traveling, where they would be stopping. And what came out of them when they were confronted with this general hardship was complaining and grumbling as they rebelled against God's provision and God's plan. We can do the exact same thing. The warning we should have taken from last week's passage was that when we experience general hardship, or even just a change in our normal routines, this is how we can act as well. Because it's human nature. And that is both a comfort and a warning to us. It's a comfort because it's not as though this is abnormal, but it's a warning because we saw that God was not pleased. And that their reaction, their very normal reaction, stalled their progress toward the good things that God had promised for them. This week, the Israelites' progress was stalled again. And this week provides believers with another type of warning. Just like we need to be careful when we experience general hardship, we need to be careful regarding criticism. Let's start reading in chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. This first verse in chapter 12 has caused all kinds of curiosity. Who is this Cushite woman? Why did they criticize Moses because of her? And pretty much everything you will find is speculation. Some guess that um, Cushite in the Bible generally refers to someone from Ethiopia. 
So some people guess that Moses married another woman who was actually a Cushite. Others say that no, this, they were actually referring to Zipporah, Moses' longtime wife, who was from Midian, and they just referred to her as a Cushite because she had dark skin, which was common for Midianites. Whatever, whoever this was and whatever they criticized her about it, it's really not that important because we're told in the next verse what their real issue was. Verse 2, they said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? From this statement, we see that the real issue was that something was causing Miriam and Aaron to feel threatened. Their position within the people of God felt threatened. Now, it's certainly possible that they felt this way because of what happened in last week's section of scripture. If you remember, Moses, when he was so overwhelmed with bearing the responsibility of the people, God told him to select 70 men, elders within the community, bring them to the tent of meeting, and God took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed it on these 70 men. Maybe Moses consulted his wife on who to select. Maybe he just did not consult Miriam and Aaron. Or perhaps Miriam and Aaron just felt threatened now because now there were an additional 70 people walking around with authority from God. Whatever the thought process, they reacted to this threat by criticizing Moses. And we were told that the Lord heard. The Lord heard last week when the people were grumbling and complaining. And the Lord heard this week when Miriam and Aaron were criticizing. From what we are told in the text, it seems as though Moses did not respond at all, because all we're told is verse 3. Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Humble is defined in the dictionary as free from pride and arrogance, not thinking of oneself as better than other people. Humility is highly valued by God. We saw in our homework that God takes note of the humble. He leads them. He teaches them. He looks favorably on them. He listens to their prayers. So what is so great about humility? Well, first, humility acknowledges that God is the only one that sees any given situation perfectly. He is the only one that sees everything past, present, and future. He's the only one that sees everything that's been revealed and everything that is hidden. When we acknowledge that God is the only reliable source of truth, we are by definition acknowledging that we are not reliable sources of truth all the time that we don't see everything perfectly. So humility causes a person to appeal to God, to reach out to God. Humility also acknowledges that each and every person was created by God and in the image of God. So humility has us see that God created everyone and has a plan for them. It's going to acknowledge that for ourselves, 
God created me. God cares about me. God has a plan for me. But it is also going to acknowledge that truth for every single other human being. God created you. God cares about you. God has a plan for you. So humility is really going to elevate truth, the truth about God and the truth about other people. It is what enables us to draw near to God, to walk with God, and it's what causes us to genuinely care about other people. We have seen a lot to corroborate the assertion that Moses was humble. Moses consistently sought God for truth, and he consistently acted in the best interest of God's people. We just saw evidence of Moses' humility in last week's section of Scripture. After God took some of the Spirit and placed it on those 70 other people, Moses' assistant did not know how to handle that. And Moses said to him, Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his Spirit on them. It is truly a humble person that wants to see God use other people. It is generally assumed that Moses is the author of the book of Numbers. So can a humble person claim to be the most humble person on the face of the earth and actually be humble? I like how C.S. Lewis, the author, describes humility in the screw tape letters. A demon is instructing another demon on humility And he says the following, the enemy, God, wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy, God, wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. So by this definition, of course, Moses could claim to be the most humble person on the face of the earth if it was true, and he didn't take any pride in it. Part of why God used Moses the way that he did likely had to do with the fact that Moses was very humble. Listen to what, so if we want to be used by God, we are going to need to focus on humility. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 20. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God uses humble people. It is also a very humble person that does not respond 
to criticism. And it certainly seems like Moses did not respond because there's no mention of a rebuttal from him. I think it's worth noting that this was likely a very low point for Moses. We saw last week that he was acting very out of character. Um, He had this real outburst to God, asking him to put him out of his misery. God takes his spirit, puts it on these 70 other men to help him, and then a plague breaks out in the camp, and his own sister and brother criticize him. Yet, Moses still acted with humility, even in this difficult time. Having children can humble a person. I mean, my parenting was great before I actually had children. (laughs) Um, We had a friend from D.C. who used to take great pleasure in teasing me. All the jabs were just constant. And honestly, I mean, it worked. Well, we went a long time without seeing them. And when they came into town to visit, of course, he was looking for a way to uh, get under my skin. And he said something like, you know, you should really get your children under control. And without even thinking, I was like, I know. Do you have any advice? Silence. All this time, the only thing I needed to do was not respond to the criticism. Moses not responding left room for God. Picking back up in verse 4. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of clouds, stood at the entrance to the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them came forward, he said, listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So Miriam and Aaron challenged Moses' role as prophet of God. And God addressed that challenge head on. Right here, we get some very useful information for believers. God chooses the way that he reveals himself to people. God makes people prophets or not. And he chooses how he reveals himself. We cannot force God to reveal himself or to speak in us or through us. And we certainly cannot dictate how he speaks to us. Our only concern is learning to discern how the Lord speaks to us, what it sounds like, how we know his leading. God here says that his communication with prophets is typically a bit obscure, visions and dreams. Anyone who has read the prophetic books can attest to this. They are often very unclear. God speaking to Moses differently, more clearly, served to elevate him in the eyes of the people so that they would know that God spoke through him. God has made it very clear that God spoke through Moses. Practically every single word that God spoke in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were spoken through Moses. 
And Moses had a proven track record. Everything he said about the plagues to Pharaoh came true. God performed many mighty signs through Moses. God even gave a visible sign each and every time that Moses came out of God's presence. His face glowed. God made it clear that he speaks through Moses. So God's question to Miriam and Aaron in verse 8 was, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Pride causes us to fear the wrong things. Pride caused Miriam and Aaron to fear losing prominence in God's people. But pride also causes us not to fear the right thing. They don't seem to have feared how God would view their criticism. The fact that God spoke so clearly and consistently through Moses should have caused anyone to pause before criticizing him. But listen to me. God does not expect us to blindly follow anyone who claims to speak for God. There are many people who claim to speak for God and absolutely do not. God wants us to discern whether, someone, whether he is speaking through someone or not. The more evidence we see of God's activity in a person's life, the more we can trust what they say. We want to see, do they walk by the Spirit? Do they have the fruit of the Spirit? Are things that they've said true? So if we see these things, and, and actually when we start to recognize the Spirit speaking to us directly, we, it will be much easier for us to discern whether the words someone is speaking are from God or something they just made up on their own. When it is obvious that God is working through someone, we should be cautious regarding criticism. Picking up in verse 9. The Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, resembling snow. Miriam's skin condition was most assuredly judgment from God. God is slow to anger. So the fact that he got angry and judged Miriam immediately tells us that what was done was very serious. Now, we may be tempted to question, why did Miriam get judged and not Aaron? Well, we don't know because God hasn't told us, but we can conclude a couple of things. First, we can conclude with certainty that God's response was perfect because God always does what is perfect. So either if this was appropriate based on the offense or it was appropriate based on the response that God wanted to elicit from Miriam and Aaron. So either Miriam was more culpable or both Miriam and Aaron would respond best to the punishment as given. We can also note that this was actually pretty merciful to Aaron's sons and also to the people in general. There were only three priests for the entire nation of Israel. If Aaron was outside of the camp for seven days, that would have created a very big hardship for his sons and the people. 
<clears throat> Picking back up in verse 10. When Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, My Lord, please don't hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like a dead baby whose ha- flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Notice that Aaron does not appeal to God. God has left. So perhaps he just cannot appeal directly to God. Or maybe he feels as though he should not, because he's obviously not in the best standing with God at the moment. His sin has created a separation between him and God. Here we see clearly another role that God has bestowed upon Moses, that of intercessor. He's exercised that role consistently in Exodus and Numbers. Aaron asks Moses to intercede with God, and Moses does not hesitate to do so. Verse 13, then Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. The Lord answered Moses, if her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back in. God responded to Moses' request in something that probably seems a little strange to us. But I can assure you that it meant something to the original audience and that we should not be tripped up by this. What we should notice is that God followed a very logical thought process for assigning Miriam's punishment. I fear some people have come to believe that because God is a merciful, good God, that there should never be any consequences, ever. But I doubt many of us have experienced that. Although we can't be completely sure, there is reason to believe that God answered Miriam's, uh, Moses's plea for Miriam right away and healed her immediately, and that's based on the skin laws in Leviticus 14. But whether he healed her immediately or sometime over that seven-day period, we know that God healed her in that time frame because anyone with a skin condition was not allowed to be in the camp. So God's mercy and his forgiveness did not remove all consequences immediately. There was a phrase I heard a lot when I was working in corporate America. Maybe you're familiar with it. It is better to seek forgiveness than ask permission. Somewhere along the line, through trial and error, people discovered that it really wasn't worth all the hassle of making sure whatever they, were, they wanted to do was okay. Because if anyone got upset about it, all they'd have to do is ask forgiveness and it would be fine. I think that God does not always immediately remove consequences because over time people would learn that it didn't really matter what their conduct was. And I don't think that God is pleased by that. I think God wants his people to truly think about and consider what would be pleasing to him and to be careful with our actions. We should also note that consequences, they, um, they humble a person and they also cause us to be compassionate to other people when they experience consequences. Picking back up in verse 15. So Miriam was confined outside of the camp for seven days, 
and the people did not move on until Miriam was brought back in. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Miriam and Aaron's actions had real consequences. Consequences to them and consequences to the entire community. Their arrival to the promised land would be delayed by at least one week. Our actions affect other people, and we are affected by other people's actions. Today's section of scripture is more than an episode of sibling rivalry. It provides believers with a series of warnings that we would do well to heed. We have seen throughout scripture that Moses foreshadowed the coming Messiah. So the most relevant warning from this week's section of scripture is related to how we treat Jesus Christ. Moses was appointed by God to be his prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. People sin most similarly to Miriam and Aaron when they criticize Jesus Christ by questioning whether God speaks through him. Now, I doubt most Christians would think that they criticize Christ. But a recent survey by Probe Ministries found that nearly 70% of born-again Christians disagree with the biblical position that Jesus is the only way to God. So it seems as though people both inside and outside of the church actually believe there are many ways to God, not just Jesus. But Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just as Aaron and Miriam needed Moses' intercession for them, anyone who wants forgiveness from God needs Jesus Christ's intercession on their behalf. Moses points to the person and work of Jesus Christ, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. Hebrews 3, 3 through 6. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. If God was so swift and decisive, to confront challenges to Moses' authority. Imagine how swift and decisive God will be to confront challenges to Jesus Christ's authority. The most important warning from this week's text relates to how we treat God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this is where we should be the most cautious. But we would be wise to extend the warning a bit further and consider how this passage might be applicable to our criticism of believers. Because God works through believers. In Acts 5, 
when the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus' disciples, a highly esteemed Pharisee, Gamaliel, said the following, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this work, if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. When we fight against people that God is using, God views that as fighting against him. If you need further proof, Acts 9. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. Saul persecuted Jesus' disciples, the one that, ones that Jesus was using to do his work, and Jesus viewed that as Saul persecuting him directly. So just as we should be cautious about criticizing Jesus Christ, we should be cautious with our criticisms of people through whom Jesus Christ is working. We live in a fallen world. And unfortunately, believers are not immune to acting badly. So what should we do with our criticism when we perceive that something is not right? Well, first I think that it's worth noting that we should not shy away from confronting potentially bad behavior. Because it's not in anyone's best interest for that to continue. It's not in the best interest of those on the receiving end for obvious reasons, but it's also not in the best interest of the ones acting badly. Because God is a just judge. And the longer that bad behavior goes on, the harder it is for people to repent and the worse the consequences will be to them. So it's always good to catch something early so that we can repent and turn from it. But laid before us this week were two diametrically opposed approaches to confrontation. We had criticism and humility. We saw in our homework that Moses' humility was one way he foreshadowed Jesus Christ. Christ is humble. The Bible tells us that the enemy of God, Satan, is proud. In fact, Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren, the criticizer of the brethren. So if we are Christ followers, even in our confrontations, we are going to need to look like Christ. We are going to need to choose humility. Several years ago, a friend told me about this little pamphlet, which I think every believer should read. It's called Exposing the Accuser of the Brethren. It addresses and warns believers not to unwittingly do Satan's work for him. 
Instead, we need to have both the motives and the methods of Christ in our confrontations. God, what God wants for each and every person is for them to come to a saving faith and to enter into covenant with him. And then after that, he wants each and every person to grow in their maturity, in their faith. So the first thing we should do when we perceive that something might not be right is to pray. We can pray for the person, the organization, wisdom, direction on what to do with what we perceive. I'll never forget a strained relationship that I had several years ago where I just kept having the same really frustrating conversations. And finally, maybe because I really just didn't think anything I could do was going to work, I finally truly prayed. I told God what I wished the other person could see. To my utter shock and dismay, a couple weeks later in a conversation with that person, they said almost verbatim the exact thing I told the Lord. I didn't even have to confront it. This is the power of prayer. And this is what we should always do first. Sometimes, maybe less than we would expect, we may need to confront someone. In doing so, we must have godly motives. God very clearly confronts wrong behavior, but his goal is always repentance. Look at what he says in Ezekiel 33:11. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Where there is wrongdoing, God is interested in repentance. But where there is immaturity, God is looking and he's interested in growth. And as God's people, that's what we need to be interested in as well. When we see something that we're not sure is right, because God cares about truth, we, may, we are going to pray about it and possibly confront it, but with humility. Have you ever truly thought something only to find out later that you only had half the story, and when you got the rest of that, the story, your opinion was different? Proverbs 18:17 tells us, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. We will always be better off if we can bring up our concerns, leaving room for the possibility that there is some lo reasonable, logical explanation that we just did not see. And actually bringing up those con concerns in that way makes it much easier for the person on the receiving end to actually hear us and consider the merits of what we're saying. Often we lose people right away because what we say we do not say with humility. So when we see something we think might not be good, we're going to start with prayer. And if we still think that God is prompting us to bring up our concerns, we're going to do so with humility. 
but we also need to be willing to be part of the solution. Several years ago, after God had been bringing up all of these disciplines in his word that I, became, that I started putting into practice, and then I became more and more convinced that they were good and that every believer would benefit from them, I started to get a little nervous. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Was God leading me to go to a different church that maybe felt the same as I did about these things? And so I cried out to God, God, I just want to find a church that believes this and does this. And almost immediately, God said to me, so let me get this straight. You just want to show up somewhere where all of these things have been worked out. You don't have any interest in being part of the solution. And that really reframed things for me. I need to be willing to serve. Newsflash, there is no church, there is no body of believers where everything is perfect. And so if that is our goal, we are going to be constantly uprooting. God doesn't abandon us because we are not perfect. Instead, he works to build us up, build us up to maturity in Christ. And that should be our goal. This pamphlet asserts the following. In most cases, the things people deem wrong or lacking are the very areas in which the Lord seeks to position them for intercession. What might otherwise be an opportunity for spiritual growth and meeting a need becomes an occasion of stumbling and withdrawal. In truth, their criticisms are a smokescreen for a prayerless heart and an unwillingness to serve. If we are to follow Christ's example, we must be focused on building up the body of believers by interceding through prayer and serving where there is a need. What about when we are the recipients of criticism? Sometimes we are accused wrongly, criticized wrongly. Sometimes we are criticized rightly. Well, Moses provided a near-perfect example of how to respond to criticism. But also, we can bring people's criticisms of us to God. God is the only one that sees everything. We can ask him, God, is there any truth in this? Is there anything that I should adjust in my own life to, to, as a result of this criticism? And then we can let the rest go resting assured that God is interested in our spiritual growth, not in our condemnation. So you see, humility is the one character trait that promises to improve every single relationship that we have and any conversation in which we find ourselves. The power in humility lies in the fact that it is so counter to everything in us. When we witness true humility, it is striking. It draws our attention. 
When my mother was in college, she worked as a waitress in a local restaurant. She recalls a day where the manager of, was being very harsh with one of the other waitresses who she knew to be a Christian. My mother was shocked by the response of this other young woman. She thought to herself, I could never respond with that much humility. Something in her wanted what that young woman had. So my mother attributes her salvation not to some compelling argument about the existence of God, but rather to the power of humility in an everyday situation. Let's pray. Father God, you are high and lifted up. No one approaches you, Lord, in your goodness and your kindness. You're the only one that we can truly trust because you are good and you are right, never rushed, never too far away from us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would use the words that are in your word to us and also the words spoken in our small groups, Lord, to change us, to draw us to truth. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us see areas where you want us to serve, areas where you, relationships where we can implement humility and act in a way that is pleasing to you, God. Lift up each and every one of us in the relationships that we have, the conversations that we find ourselves in, Lord. Ask for your leadership and your guidance. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.